Hey, everybody. Good to see you. Um, all right, so yesterday we talked about the fact that God created us and that we human beings are both heavenly and earthly beings, creatures. So we are people with spirits. We are spirits. Uh, every single one of us is going to live forever. We're immortal. And that means uh, we're spiritual beings. We're, hev- we're, we're from heaven in a, in a sense. Right? We're heavenly in that way. But we're also embodied. So human beings are embodied spirits. So we're earthly. We're made from the dust. We're going to see more about that in a minute. Uh, and so we're, we're embodied spirits. We're heavenly and earthly in that way. And that actually all of history is about the union of those two spaces. That God is ruling over both spaces uh, in harmony. They're to be one. So in the beginning... Heaven comes down to earth. God condescends into the garden. In the end of history, heaven's going to come down to earth. Uh, Jesus Christ is going to condescend and bring heaven to earth to dwell with us forever. So we don't go up. Salvation is not going up. Salvation is God coming down right, to be with us. Now, the second thing, uh, and I didn't say it like this yesterday, but that means that the meaning of human existence is really simple and uh, as one of my favorite preachers says that we just had Christmas, um, God became a wiggly little baby in order to get close to you. And that is the meaning of human existence. That's the meaning of human history, that God wants to be close to you and near to you. And so he's always been coming down from eternity, from outside of space and time into space and time to be close to you. And so in the middle of human history, God became a wiggly little baby, Jesus Christ, to be near to you. And so that's, uh, that's what it means to be human, to be near unto God, that God made us for that. Now, let me mention one thing that I didn't get to yesterday, and that's that you see that also in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, this is one, one of the little details I left behind yesterday, um, and that's that when you read commentators, scholars on Genesis 1 and 2, everybody's in agreement that one of the things that's happening in the creation story is that Moses is writing an argument against the creation myths of the ancient Near East. And so when you look at the details of the text really closely, you can start to see things like that. Uh, it, t- it takes help from people that have thought about these things a lot. But that's one of the things that Moses is doing, and that, that's important. Uh, so remember that Moses is writing this, this text, this history of creation, while Israel is about to enter the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They had been Egyptian slaves. They have come through, the Hebrew people have come out of the Tower of Babel experience even before that. And so there are two mythologies particularly that Moses is probably arguing against. The Egyptian mythology, which is all about the God of the sun, Ra. Right, So God, when does God create the sun? Not day one, day four. But on day one, there's light and darkness. And so one of the things Moses is saying is in the beginning, the real God doesn't even need the sun to make light. You know, the Egyptians put everything into the sun. But the real God, the sun was an afterthought. You know, it's just a little thing. Light existed way before the sun did. Uh, The Babylonian myth that existed even before the Egyptian myth uh, I'll just tell it to you in, in 30 seconds. Uh, it's that there was a, a god named Marduk 
some of you know this, the Enuma Elish, you might have come across this, yeah? Uh, there was a guy named Marduk, and he got in a fight with a goddess called Tiamat. She tried to usurp him, and he cut open her belly. She was the goddess of the sea. She, he cut open her belly, and out of her belly, the world came, the earth. And then the gods were upset because they didn't want to have to deal with the earth. And so they made humans, and humans were the slave, meant to be the slave race of the gods from the beginning, to care for the dirty earth, the physical earth that the gods didn't want to deal with. Uh, there's little references in the Genesis story in Hebrew to, to that story, like the fact that the word the deep is almost identical to the word Tiamat, that the, the spirit hovered over the, the deep. And Moses is subtly saying, uh, you are not a slave race. The world is not an accident. Um, God did not make this, this space in this world as an afterthought. And the last thing I'll say about that is one of the ways that that's signaled is that in chapter one, if you were to go through chapter one, you'll see every time the 35 times God is mentioned, that's the Hebrew word Elohim, the generic word for God. But as soon as you get to Genesis chapter two, it switches. And you'll see in Genesis chapter two, part of our reading today had this, that it's now the Lord God that's interacting with Adam and Eve. And Lord is the name Yahweh, the name that didn't historically get introduced till Exodus 3. And it's the personal covenantal name of God, meaning that God, as soon as he makes Adam and Eve, his image, he wants to be close to them. He's Yahweh for them. He's covenant God to them. Very, very different than Egypt. Very, very different than Babylon. The real creation story, the real God uh, wants to be close to you. And he became a wiggly little baby to do that. That's, that's the message of creation. Now, let's think a little bit more specifically today about image. Um, so we read Genesis 1, 26 to 28, uh, where it says that God created us in his image, in his likeness. Um, God imaged himself in us, as us. Uh, now, we, we, we can only touch on the high points of all, the, all these things. Uh, the high point is, what is the image of God? Uh, that's the big question people ask. So we've already talked about humans. We're, we're earthly and we're heavenly. But the Bible comes and tells us that we are the image of God. There's our definition of humanity, the image of God. What is that? What does that mean? And if you go back and read people who have thought about this for 2,000 years and more, more, because this is text is a lot older than 2,000 years, uh, you'll see a few different things come up. One of the things that comes up most often is to say that the image of God, humans, what is the image? What does it mean that we have the image? The image of God is primarily a capacity, an ability. So people will talk about the image as the ability we have to reason and to think and to make decisions and to discern, right? So image distinguishes us from animals, right? And so what is it that makes us different from animals? Well, we can think a lot better than they can. We can reason a lot better than them. We have self-consciousness, so an animal has consciousness, but, well, people are, they debate this. Some of you might disagree, but typically we say animals don't have self-consciousness. So they're not a bit, a, a, able to think of themselves as a me, like you can. So you have self-consciousness, you have reason, you have uh, a complex emotional life. You have a will, you can make decisions and determinations. You're creative, you can make things, you can invent things. Uh, that's to think of the image as capacity, right? So what is the image? Well, you are like God in that you can think, you can speak, 
you're self-conscious. God is self-conscious. Uh, not self-conscious in like I'm, he's worried about himself, but self-conscious in the sense that he's aware of himself, right? Um, but there's a huge issue with that. A huge issue with saying the image of God is capacity. Maybe it's already occurred to you. And it's that when a person is seriously injured and goes through some serious trauma and they are laying in the hospital bed in a coma and they've lost their ability to reason, they've lost their ability to think, to make judgments, to be creative, to invent things, are they the image of God? So in other words, if you lose your rationality, do you lose the capacity to be the image of God? Right? And so one of the things people have pointed out is, is you cannot reduce the image of God to a capacity. That's not primarily what you are. If you lose your reason, if you get Alzheimer's, you will still be the image of God. Right? So the image of God as capacity is something that highlights the image, but is not the image. You see? Now, the second thing that people say the image of God is, is some people say, well, okay, it's, it's not just capacity, but it's actually ethics. So in other words, what it's saying here is that you as a human being are primarily a creature that has the ability to image God to the world as a verb, to image. Meaning when you uh, live with virtue, when you choose the good, not the evil, you are imaging God to the world. You're imaging his perfections, his virtues, his goodness. That's the image as ethics. Now, very true. That's an aspect of it. But there's a problem. Right? Just like the person laying in the bed that cannot reason, we, we must say is still the image of God. In the same way, is it the case that when you sin, you are not the image of God anymore? So if, if image is just the way you behave, then if you behave badly, you lose the image of God. And uh, particularly Protestant uh, thinkers and Protestant Christians have come and said, no, 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 that can't be the case. We see throughout scripture that we are still the image of God even after the fall. Adam and Eve in the fall, in their sin, still are and have the image of God. What is the image of God? And <clears throat> the best thing to say about it, I think, is just to be simple. Just to be simple. So what's a human being? The image of God. It's a tautology. <laughs> the, the subject and predicate are the same. Flip it around. What is the image of God? Human beings. Uh, you don't have the image. You don't bear the image. You don't display the image. Well, you do. But you are the image of God. Right? So when somebody asks, what's the image of God? The, the best thing and easiest thing to do is just to point at people and say, that's the image of God. That's the image of God. You're the image of God. That's a, your essence is the image of God. That's what you are. You are the image of God. You can't help it. You can't get out of it. Uh, it doesn't matter how you behave. It doesn't matter what your capacity to reason is. You, you just are the image of God. And so you can see this in that Bavink quote that I, I gave you, I think. Uh, he says, the essence of human nature, what is a human? The essence of human nature is its being the image of God. The entire world is a revelation of God, a mirror of his attributes and perfections. Every creature in its own way, so even animals, trees, all the creatures in some sense image God in a way, but only the human being is the image of God, God's highest and richest self-revelation, and consequently the head and crown of creation. What's a human being? You are a heavenly and earthly being, embodied spirit. You are the image of God, and you are the crown of creation, right? So it's just what you are. 
It's your essence. You can't get out of it. So in Genesis 2-7, we didn't read this today, uh, but, it, but it's right there. Have a look at it in your Bible now. Um, in Genesis 2-7, we learn that God breathed, uh, ex- um, uh, he, he breathed his life into humanity. There's only two things that God does that to. Uh, God breathes life into humanity and God breathes life into the scriptures. Those are the only two things. And we see that, that that's exactly what it means, that we are his image. He breathes his life into us. We, we are his image. Now, let me say two more things about the image, and we'll then look at the image more in depth by thinking about gender. Uh, two, thing, two more things about the image. We said yesterday that God made the world to be one, uh, one thing with many parts. And we called that, uh, we, we labeled that an organic unity. Right, so organisms are alive. They're one thing, but they have lots of parts, lots of diversity about them. So you're an organism, right? You are one thing. You are you, and yet you have many parts. You know, you've you've got toes and hair and all sorts of other parts. You have parts of your soul as well, your emotional life and your will. Lots of parts, but one thing: a living organism. Um, the image is also organic. All right, so we image God, you are the image of God, but none of us as individuals are the full image of God by ourselves. All right, so one of the things we see in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 is God created Adam, man, and that's a reference to all of humankind, not just Adam, in his image. It's a corporate reference, meaning that uh, none of us can by ourselves display or be the image of God in full. We have to have everybody else to do it. And we're going to see that in just a second. Immediately he says, what's the image? Male and female, he created them. So gender is not a second thing. He says, no, male and female is the image. It's corporate. You've got to have both to have the image. Why? Because no single, let's put it simple, no single one of us can... uh, in ourselves, by ourselves, display the perfections of God as his image in full, right? God is just too much, too big, too, too perfect for that. So some of you, for example, uh, all of you, if you're a believer today, you have a spiritual gift. And for some of you, it's encouragement. Some of you, it's not encouragement. Uh, some of you, not thinking, I don't know you well enough to say who, who's who. Uh, some of you, it's generosity, some of you, it's wisdom. Some of you, it's teaching. All sorts of different spiritual gifts there are. And that also maps out onto your personality and the specific ways that God made you to, to embody and display virtues, some virtues more than other virtues. Like some of you love people more. Some of you have more joy than other people. Some of you have more peace in your life than other people. Uh, that's all different for all of us. And that's okay. None of us has the ability to display the image of God in full, to be the image in full, because God's perfections are far too abundant. But when you look at a room and you see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, wisdom, encouragement, generosity, as a collective, then you see there's the corporate image, right? The image is both one and many. You are the image, yet you don't display the fullness of the image. You need everybody else to do that too, right? All right, so the image is organic. Now, third thing, and that's that the image, for that reason, is gendered. 
Okay, so look down at uh, this little point. This is actually a poem. I did something so stupid. Um, I came, I told you on this, I came, uh, I left yesterday and grabbed my Bible, <clears throat> my reading Bible. It's the Bible I use for like devotion and stuff. And it has no verses in it. So um, it's very, this is a very dumb move when you're teaching because you can't say, oh, look down at verse. I don't know what the verse numbers are. So uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, I know that. I know that's the section we're in. Uh, but you'll see when it says, so God created man in his own image. That's actually a, a, a poem. Maybe your Bible sets it, indents it. Does anybody have a Bible did that? Yeah, it's poetry, Hebrew poetry. God created man, Adam. That's a generic word for humankind, not Adam himself. In God's own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then the very next thing we get is male and female. He created them, right? So if you're talking about the image of God and you don't speak about gender, you've missed it. Because that's what God does. God immediately says, I created humankind in my image. And here's the very next thing I want to tell you. It's male and female. That's the image. Gendered humanity. Uh, Corporate humanity. An organic unity between male and female to display the image. To be the image into the world. And so being gendered is not a second thing. Being gendered is essential to what it means to be the image of God. Uh, male, men and women, boys and girls, male and female, we corporately are the image of God into the world. All right? Uh, now, that highlights the, again, I'm going to use this word, organicity, the, the organism aspect, the unity and diversity of the image that is corporate, that it's got to be all of us together. And it also highlights the fact that uh, men and women display, at times, different perfections of God and highlight perfections differently. Although we all share the same virtues, we all share the same love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, but men and women do that in different ways sometimes. And that's part of imaging God into the world and his many perfections. Now it gets more specific than that. So let's think about that for the rest of our time. Um, And we're going to be looking more at at chapter two here. Um, Let me say this before I I dig in. Uh, The Bible is deep and wide. And um, St. Augustine has the, you know, the very famous line that you've probably all heard lots of times about preachers uh, that Augustine says about the Gospel of John that it's – the Gospel of John is simple enough so that it's like a pool, like a pool of water where a toddler can swim safely, wade safely in. So in other words, he's saying that a, even a, a little child can grasp the profundity of the Gospel in the Gospel of John. And yet it's deep enough that an elephant can freely swim without touching the bottom, without touching the sides. The, the whole Bible is like that. The Bible is, the gospel is clear as day. It's simple. The Bible is simple and it has depths that you will never touch. Okay? It has depths that no human being will ever find. One day when we're with Jesus, we'll find out the depths of scripture that we never got to. The depths of the word. Uh, and so th- I, I say that to say that um, we, we always want to hold both those things together. That the gospel and the main idea of the text is always clear. And there are depths that you will never reach. And so you can come back and back and back and see more and more. More and more and more. All, always as you come to scripture. That's probably going to be one of those things that we're about to do now. Uh, with thinking about g- the gendered image in Genesis chapter 2 in particular. Okay, so uh, let me do this um, as, as uh, 
without taking two hours or something. Don't worry. Um, first claim, number one. In Genesis chapter one, we saw a movement in the creation days, that structure of creation. And that movement is that God creates things from the lesser to the greater. Genesis, uh, day six, he creates humans. We're the climax of creation, the crescendo, the big, the big deal in the creation story. Uh, so you see this movement from day one to day six, from the lesser to the greater. Okay, Genesis one is the broad creation story. Well, you come over to Genesis two and you have a more narrow creation story that focuses in on humanity, Adam and Eve, and how God made Adam from the dust and Eve after that from him. And what, you're ha- what you have in Genesis two I want to argue to you or argue, make the point to you that you have the same thing. It's very important to see that when it comes to the corporate image, male and female, you have a crescendo movement in Genesis chapter two from the lesser to the greater. And that that's being signaled to us over and over again. And that that is the movement from male to female in the image of God, humans. All right, so that's, that's the first thing. Keep that, that climactic movement in your mind, that crescendo movement from Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Second thing, uh, if you look down at verse, um, again, we didn't read it, but chapter 2, verse 7. It says that the Lord God, Yahweh God, formed the man, Adam, from dust, from the dust of the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Adam was made from dust. Uh, from matter, from stuff, from the ground. Uh, the word that we get dust of the ground there is, uh, is important to, to make a note of. So Adam's name is Adam, uh, A-D-A-M in English. And in Hebrew, he's made from the dust of the ground. And that's the word A-D-A-M-A-H. So it just says Adam was made from the Adama. Right? So he's made of, his name is just, bas- Adam's name is basically stuff. Material, substance, dirt, uh, or soil, I should say. I said dirt in a sermon recently at St. Columbus, and somebody came after me, up to me after and said that I shouldn't say the word dirt. Um, apparently, that's like a thing. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> dirt, to me, is not a negative term, but I think that maybe that's... Is, that, is dirt a negative term for, for, for you guys? No, you're okay with it? It might have been a generational distinction. I'm not sure. But um, soil, good stuff. You know, the stuff that we grow stuff from. That's what he's made from. Uh, Adam of the Adamah. His name is earthly. You see? He's from the earth. And this is a very normal verb that's used here for making or or giving life. It's as if God, it's a verb that we use for God as a potter or a gardener. So he's kind of growing Adam up. That's the metaphor, out of the, out of the soil. But then when you come to Eve, uh, Genesis 2.22. Um, if I can find Genesis 2.22 in my passage here. Uh, okay, here we are. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. We'll come back to that in just a sec. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs. He closed it up, that place of the flesh. And the rib that he had taken, the man made into a woman. Okay, somebody shout out. What do you have there for the verb that he had taken from the man he made into a woman? Is that the same for everybody or is it different for anybody? 
Fashioned. Fashioned, yeah. That's, what, what translation do you have? That's the one in the book. Oh, perfect. Well, hey, there we go. I did my job. Um, the NASB. The NASB um, translates it much more literally. So I don't know why the ESV chose made here. Um, it, it's a very different word from what we have with Adam. It's the word to fashion. It's the verb that's used mostly in the Bible to talk about building palaces. It's the word that's used to build Solomon's temple. Uh, it's a word of art and artistry. It's a word of magnificence. It's what the artist does. The first one is when you, you a potter makes a pretty simple thing, a, a, a pot out of materials from the earth. The second one is when an artist paints a beautiful canvas, an architect designs you know, a beautiful palace, something like that. So there is a, there's a very clear movement and a very clear distinction from, uh, from dust to art, from earthiness to something much higher. There's a movement from the lesser to the greater, just like in Genesis 1. And there's a reason that God says to Adam, uh, creation's very good, but there is one thing that is not good. Right, so seven times in Genesis 1, we're told it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And that means it's good. But uh, when you get to Genesis 2, there is something that's not good, and it's that Eve does not exist. And when we get to her creation story, um, she is fashioned, not made. It's very different. And that's because there's a movement here. Now, let me give you the basic idea. Um, the basic idea is simply this to keep in your mind, and I'll give you a few more details. The basic idea is that uh, from the very beginning, from the creation story, we have a world teeming with life, but also teeming full of signs and symbols and meaning. All right, we call this, we call these types in scripture. They are signs, sacred signs of the meaning of existence, sacred signs of the meaning of reality. So there's all sorts of types in the Old Testament. David is a type of Jesus Christ that is to come, right? They sign forth the meaning of what God's doing in history. The image of God is a type. And maleness and femaleness from the very beginning is a type of God's meaning for the world. And we see that. Remember, human beings are earthly and heavenly. They're, at, they're from the Adamah, and yet they're also of God, full of spirit and life, full of the heavenly things. And that actually is displayed typologically, symbolically, in the sacred symbol of the movement in Genesis 2 from men to women, maleness to femaleness, from the lesser to the greater. First uh, Corinthians 10 says that woman is the glory or crown of man, of Adam. And that's exactly it. Woman is the crown. The woman is the crown of creation. She is the climax of creation. She's the pinnacle creature. And that's because she symbolizes or signals or typifies something very specific. And that is new creation. So man is the sign of creation. He's of the dust. He's the beginning, but woman is the end, the second, the last. Why? Because a woman signs, signals, typifies 
what God is ultimately doing, which is bringing the union of heaven and earth, bringing new creation. Now, that was the goal of the Garden of Eden. Uh, If Adam and Eve would have obeyed God, God would have brought the kingdom. And she, Eve, was the sign of that coming. Her Her creation itself was a signal and a sign and a type that God was in a covenant relationship and he was going to bring the kingdom forever to them if they obeyed. They didn't. And so Eve, woman, becomes then a sign of what God's doing in all of redemptive history, which is bringing about a kingdom that is to come, a glory, a new creation. He's building something. He's fashioning something. He's an artist. He's bringing the great palace, the heavenly palace, into the earthly. And that's exactly what a woman signals or typifies. In her, in, that's what female says in the creation story. That's what it means. Now, let me show you this. That's the big idea. Let me show you this in a couple more details so that you can... So that I can hopefully make the argument to you in a way that uh, convinces you, perhaps. But it's okay if not. It's okay if not. Um, I don't mind uh, being disagreed with at all. Um, let's see. Where are we? Here we are. The, the, the man, Adam, is given a role. Chapter 2, verse 15, that first uh, verse that uh, was read for us in the chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Um. These two verbs, to work it and to keep it, uh, you guys studied Leviticus here last year, show up in Leviticus, they show up in Numbers in that same format, to work it and to keep it. They are the verbs that are used for the priests. So once God establishes a tabernacle and a temple system, he tells the priest the same thing, work and keep the temple. So the first time we have this, these priesthood verbs are here with Adam. And that's because Adam is the first priest and Eden is the first temple. And a temple is nothing but a place where God comes down to meet with people. And so here's the first temple. Here's the first priest. Adam's given this. And the work it and keep it. uh, Sounds like a song title or something. The work it and the keep it. They are verbs that are about the hard work of the priesthood. And that's the work of guarding. So the idea of working and keeping uh, have here. Sometimes it's translated this way to work and to guard. Meaning that the Garden of Eden is good, but it's not yet perfect. It's not yet what it will be. It has to be guarded. The temple had to be guarded. Guarded from sin, guarded from corruption, guarded from all sorts of things. That was the job of the priest. It was dirty. It was miserable. You didn't, being a priest, uh, just think about it. Day to day, you sit around for 12 hours, you're on your 12-hour shift, and you are bathed in blood. All right? You're guarding Israel from their sin and all sorts of other things. Uh, and it's a dirty work. Adam had a job of guarding, right? We, we know that. What, what's going to happen in just a few minutes? Uh, Genesis 3 is going to happen. He had to guard the temple because there are creatures in existence that want to get in and mess things up, the serpent, right? His job was to be the priest to guard. It's a temporary role. It's a role that comes in with the beginning of creation until God brings the kingdom. Right? So everything that's happening in the Garden of Eden is temporary, and there's a consummation that is to come. Uh, priesthood is temporary. Adam was a priest. It comes with creation. Preachers are temporary. Right? You don't need preachers forever. Uh, you don't need lawyers forever. You don't need doctors forever. All these offices are temporary, and when do they end? Whenever the kingdom of God comes and fixes everything. Right? Adam's role was temporary. He's a man of creation. He had this temporary role to priest. She is created, it says, uh, not as the priest, but to help the priest, 
Uh, why? Because she does not symbolize the temporary. She is the symbol, the sign of the consummation of that which is to come, the kingdom, when everything becomes perfect. Right? So the beauty of Eve is the sign and symbol of new creation, of consummation, of the kingdom, of all that is to come. And, and in that way, she is not the priest. He is. The priest guards. The priest's work is not fun. It's dirty. Uh, but, but he protects so that what she signs can come into existence, the new creation, the purpose, the end of all things, right? Now, let me wrap, wrap this up and draw some conclusions, okay, for you. Um, it says that in, Gen- in Genesis 2 here, it says that he caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, all right? Um, we, we don't really know uh, what body part or what exactly this Hebrew word means, all right? The King James decided to use the word rib, and so people have stuck with it. Um, but we don't, we don't really know exactly what it's saying about Adam's body here. But what is, what's happening here? What's happening here is that Adam is being put to sleep, and that sleep is a symbol of going down into the sleep of death, and then when he's awoken, out of him comes woman, meaning she is a sign of resurrection. He goes down, she comes up. She is the signal of glory, of the most glorious thing, resurrection. It's right here in the very beginning, signaling what God is going to do for all of history. She is the sign. She is the ultimate. Uh, that, that's what's happening. Now, let me um, apply this for just a moment um, and get a uh, step into the slightly controversial. Um, and that's this, that you need something like this to be able to answer lots of lots of questions that come up when you read the New Testament. And Paul says things like, I do not permit a woman to teach. Um, you come, come to the, the New Testament and you see all the things that, that people really wrestle with and struggle with today, the controversies around gender distinctions and roles and all sorts of stuff like that. And obviously you guys all know so much about how that plays out into the modern world that we live in. Uh, you, you need an answer to the question, why? So you come across so many statements of Paul, so many statements of so many others in the New Testament. And you say, but why? Why, why would Paul say this? And the answer, the reasons, is all based in Genesis 1 and 2. And the basic answer is because God created man and woman to signify and symbol creation and new creation. Uh, and that means that the role of uh, the pastor, like the role of the priest in the Old Testament, is the role we're told by Jesus himself to guard uh, to kick the serpent out, to get, it's a dirty job. And, uh, and an ordained minister, a man, is doing the dirty work that's symbolic of the protection of the bride. Because she's always symbolized that. And the church, that's why the church is feminine in the New Testament, right? And so actually the worship space signals or signs or symbolizes uh, sorry, I should say, is an actual embodiment of the symbols of creation itself. It works out exactly in, in the worship service in the same exact way. Now, if you were to walk through um, 1 Timothy 2, for example, Paul says things like that, like um, 
uh, I did not bring a woman to teach. And then he says, because Adam was created first, then Eve. And you see, he's saying you've got to have a creation typology to understand why. It's not restriction. It's because woman is the sign of glory itself, the new creation. And she's being guarded. The church as the bride is being guarded and protected unto new creation. It's a manifestation of the creation order uh, where the woman, the bride, is the, is the climactic crescendo of creation. He says things like, um, uh, she, she sinned and Adam was with her. He says that. Now, is he saying something bad about Eve? No, actually, it's the exact opposite. He's saying the priest was with her. He let her do that. Adam failed in the beginning because he let Eve fall to the serpent. But the whole time we're told in Genesis 2, 13, that he, uh, sorry, chapter 3, uh, that he was with her. He saw it. He watched it. The priest, to protect the bride, to protect the symbol of new creation, he failed in his task. That's what Paul's talking about. And then he says, yet she will be saved by childbearing. And what's it talking about there? It's talking about Genesis 3, 15. Yet, even despite that, even despite Adam's failure as priest to guard and protect, to bring about the kingdom in the beginning, she will save the world through the child. He's talking about Genesis 3, 15. He's talking about the promise of the seed that was to come, Jesus Christ himself, that through Eve, and then through Mary, the world is going to be saved, right? So Adam failed, and so it's through childbearing, the seed of the woman, that the world is going to be saved. And the bride is going to be rescued, the church, the people, right? So these symbols, these types, actually manifest onto the reality of redemptive history. and makes sense of a lot of the things that you see in the New Testament about gender and about the roles that, uh, that we get in the New Testament. Now, there's a lot of questions there. There's a lot of... Uh, potentially push back, and that's, that's okay. Um, I'm happy to talk about that in some of the um, Q&A, but let me close with this. If you take on um, a logic like this for what God is doing through sacred signs, even maleness and femaleness, the image, and how it displays the whole of creation history, uh, another thing you might notice, and this is the last thing we'll say, another thing you might notice, or a question you might ask, is when you've read the rest of the Bible after Genesis 1 to 3, and you've read the Gospels, and you've read places like Ephesians 5 that tell us uh, that the point of marriage is to illustrate the Gospel itself in human history. The groom come for his bride. Uh, Jesus Christ being the great groom. When you've read all that, and you go back to Genesis 1 to 3, particularly Genesis 3, and you think about this, and you say, you know, Adam failed her. The priest did not do his job. He did not protect the bride. And so new creation did not come in the Garden of Eden. We would have to wait for the seed of the woman. And then God comes down into the garden. And he comes to confront Adam. And he says, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? And immediately, what does Adam do? He, he blames her. He says, well, the woman did it, right? He neglects his duty. He neglects the fact that it actually was his fault, the failed priest. Um, you read the rest of the Bible. Maybe a question that you might ask is this. What should Adam have done when God came to the garden and said, what happened? 
Why are you hiding from me? What should Adam have done? And when you read the rest of the Bible and you see that the great groom came to die in the place of his bride. You know, when justice was required of the priest, when justice was required of man, Adam, he hid. But when justice was required of the second Adam, he came and said, I will give my life away for my bride. I will die for her. Right? What, what should Adam have done? As soon as God came and said, this is messed up. It's time for judgment. Adam should have stepped out from behind the rock and said, it was me. Don't, don't curse her. Don't curse the bride. Don't curse the woman. The pinnacle of creation. Instead, take my life. I will die in her place. That's what he should have done, right? Uh, the first Adam was a failure. We need a second Adam. You see, it's the meaning of creation and new creation. And it's built right there into the reality of the image of God. And the image of God is male and female. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that um, the depths of meaning are infinite when it comes to your word. And so there is so much that uh, we don't understand still. Yet, um, in, in the beauty of what you've done from creation to new creation, you've displayed uh, the realities right here in, into who we are as the image. So we thank you for that, um, for male and female, for us together. We can't imagine it any other way. Adam and Eve, uh, all of us together, corporate humanity. We thank you that you've built into us um, the redemption story, even into our gender. And we pray, Father, that this truth would help us read the Bible a little easier, a little better over time. And we pray also that uh, it would help us to believe the gospel even more. And so we thank you for the second Adam, the Adam, the priest that did not fail the bride. Uh, we thank you for Jesus. And we recognize all of ourselves today as the bride, uh, the bride of Christ, the, uh, the church. And so, Lord, just write these truths into our heart. Help us to see them and use them to read the rest of your word more clearly so that we might be near unto you. Thank you, that uh, Jesus, that you became a wiggly little baby uh, to be close to us. That's really all this means, too. So we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.